Before we start this episode, just a quick note that we are launching another side project sprint. What is a sprint, I hear you ask? Well, starting the 11th of June, it's a six-week-long program for people who've been sitting on ideas that they want to explore or start or even just make some time for. It's a combination of weekly group sessions and weekly deep work sessions. I so often hear from people who have ideas or have started something but then kind of stopped doing it and lost the motivation. Having a supportive community, having a deadline and making a commitment are really the key things that you can do at this stage to get it off the ground. So I hope you'll join. Um, head to outofhours.org slash summer sprint or just click the link in this episode. Even one person standing up, speaking out, saying this isn't the way it should work. Even if we're dealing with some of the biggest powers out there, huge corporations, huge regulatory systems, those things can be changed. One person can make a huge difference. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the show, we have a very special guest who's somewhat different to our usual guests. He had a side project, but it wasn't a business or creative project, but instead a legal case. His name is Rob Bellot, and he is the lawyer that New York Times described as DuPont's worst nightmare. His story inspired the Hollywood movie Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway. Rob Bellot is a corporate defense attorney, and he took on a small case as a side project to help a local farmer. Expecting it to be a quick job, he ended up working on it for over 20 years, revealing one of the greatest cover-ups in American history, DuPont's Teflon scandal. DuPont was one of the biggest chemical companies in the world, and one of its most popular products, Teflon, made over a billion dollars a year. But what customers around the world didn't know is that DuPont were using toxic chemicals to produce Teflon and dumping the poisonous waste in our drinking water. So how was that allowed to happen? Rob Bellot pursued this exact question in what became a very complex legal case. He finally found that the chemicals they were using were unregulated. They were called PFOA. The chemicals were not just in the water, but in our blood. PFOA, a man-made and toxic chemical, is now in over 99% of all living creatures in the world, even polar bears. It's persistent, it lasts forever, and it's been linked to six different diseases and birth defects. Rob Bellot has now spent over 20 years fighting for the rights of citizens whose water was poisoned. We talk about how he took on the case, why one of the largest, most trusted companies in the United States was knowingly poisoning drinking water, why no one knew about it, why he persisted over so long, and how this could be avoided in the future. I hope you enjoy. I watched Dark Waters. Uh, this is how I first found out about the story. And I was just blown away that something like that could happen to ordinary people without anyone knowing and that it was just such a mammoth cover-up. I do think it would be useful to spend kind of 10-15 minutes going through what happened in your words. A hard thing to describe in 10 minutes but let's give it a go. Well you know I've been practicing environmental law for over 31 years now. And a lot of what I was doing at the time for the first eight years or so of my career was really helping uh, primarily our big corporate clients understand the world of environmental law. What is allowed to be emitted into the air, into the water, what kind of permits are required for landfills, that kind of thing. And thought I really kind of understood that world really well. And, and then all of that changed. when I got a phone call one day from a gentleman who identified himself as Wilbur Tennant, 
And there was a farmer out in West Virginia whose cows were dying. He was convinced there was something in the water flowing through the creek that his cows were drinking that was making the cows sick, possibly even himself and his family sick. And he could see white foam coming out of this landfill. And it seemed like something we might be able to help him with. It's not the kind of case that I typically handled at the time, but it just so happened he was calling from Parkersburg, West Virginia, which was a town that I knew well. My mom and her entire family had grown up there. We spent a lot of time as a kid uh, in the area, family holidays, events. So I really kind of saw that as our my hometown. And so when he mentioned he was from Parkersburg, even though it's not really the kind of thing <laughs> I was doing at the time, I thought, sure, I'll take a look. I, I should be able to help him out on this. After all, he thought the foam was coming from a landfill right next to his property. And that's what I was helping our clients, our corporate clients do, was get permits to run landfills like that. So I really thought this would be a fairly straightforward, easy matter. And then when I heard that the landfill was owned by DuPont, that made me even more convinced that this was going to be a fairly straightforward, simple matter, because I knew DuPont, even though they weren't a client of ours, they were one of the world's largest chemical companies. They, had a, they were incredibly sophisticated. I knew their lawyers. They understood this world. They understood how to run landfills. And certainly if there was something in that water exceeding some permit limit, they'd be able to get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. So, you know, we took, agreed to take that case on in the fall of 1998. And it didn't, it ended up being a lot more complicated than I ever imagined. We ended up discovering that we were dealing with an unregulated chemical in this chemical called PFOA or C8, completely man-made chemical invented right after the war by the 3M company that DuPont had been buying and using to make Teflon at a nearby manufacturing plant. They had disposed of thousands of tons of this chemical in, in sludge into the landfill. And what we had found out digging into all of these documents, this chemical was incredibly toxic. It could cause cancer in animals. It was incredibly persistent. It could bioaccumulate, not just in animals, but in people too. All of these studies and documents going back decades showing how incredibly toxic this chemical was, persistent, not only in the environment, but in people. But the chemical had gone unregulated because it had predated a lot of the U.S. environmental laws regulating chemicals coming into the market, which came out in the 1970s. DuPont had started buying this chemical in the 1950s, decades before these laws and regulations even came out. So what we saw was here was an incredibly toxic, persistent, bioaccumulative, potentially carcinogenic chemical being used in massive quantities in this plant where Teflon was made, being discharged not only into this landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property that where the cows were drinking it in their water, but it was also getting into the air of the surrounding community. It was getting into the Ohio River which was then being used for drinking water for tens of thousands of people. It was seeping into the ground where it was getting into drinking water wells. Not only was it contaminating the water that the farmer's cows were drinking from, it ended up contaminating, we found out, the drinking water of tens of thousands of people in that entire community. And then when we started digging into that, we realized this went far beyond not only the one farm, and not only the entire surrounding community there along the Ohio River, but this chemical and the related class of man-made chemicals we now call PFAS. There's hundreds, if not thousands of them that are these completely man-made chemicals that didn't exist on the planet prior to World War II. They have been used in massive amounts of products all over the world, stain-resistant, waterproof clothing, carpeting, fast food wrappers and packaging, firefighting foams, cosmetics, dental floss, you name it. And that these chemicals weren't just used in one plant along the Ohio River. They were used in manufacturing operations all over the world. These products had been used all over the world for decades. 
this contamination went worldwide. Drinking water supplies all over the United States were contaminated, all over the world were contaminated, and most disturbingly, this resulted in contamination of essentially every living creature on this planet. These chemicals had managed to find their way into the blood of wildlife all over the world, even in polar bears in the Arctic, and it stayed there, wouldn't break down, which is why we call them forever chemicals now, but they also got into human blood and ended up essentially contaminating almost every person on the planet with these chemicals. So now we realize what started as one farmer coming to us in one small town ended up revealing an unprecedented global contamination of the environment and humans with man-made chemicals that have now been linked with an incredible array of different uh, diseases, including cancers, immune impacts, and even potentially the uh, uh, decreased effectiveness of vaccines. While we're dealing with a worldwide pandemic, we have chemicals coursing through our blood, in our water, in our environment that have these kinds of impacts, yet most of the world still doesn't realize this has even happened or the severity of the harm that these things cause. So over the last several years, I've been doing what I can to try to raise awareness of these issues, including through the film, Dark Waters, the documentary, The Devil We Know, and my book, Exposure, everything I can do to help get this story out so that regulators, the public, we can start taking steps to protect people. It's so important for people to realize what was going on at the time of this. DuPont had a reputation for being an incredible employer, having great health and safety records. You go through at least a million pages of documents. You know, there are various chapters in the book where you say like, and they gave me 300,000 pages of things to go through. I, I just think it's worth emphasizing the barriers that are there that make it people feel powerless in these situations. When he first came to you, Willem Earl Tennant, he had basically been ignored by a lot of people before he found you. So he was ignored by the Division of Natural Resources. Local lawyers were all afraid to get involved because DuPont was such a big employer. It ended up with him doing his own autopsies. In, in the film, it's amazingly portrayed these massive stacks of VHS cassettes with all of his evidence. When you met Earl, what eventually convinced you to take it on? Because it was a turning point in Earl's story that someone believed him and were willing to pursue the case. What convinced you? You know, when I first heard the story uh, from Mr. Tennant, um, you know, I was skeptical. Uh, I, I had a hard time believing that something like what he was describing um, would really happen, you know, that a company like DuPont uh, would do something uh, of that nature. But when I sat down and looked at the videotapes, as you mentioned, you know, for example, in the film, Dark Waters, and in the documentary, you see the actual videotape that Mr. Tennant took. Those are his actual films. He not only had those videotapes, he had stacks of photographs. You could see the photos. You could see the white foam. Um, when I went out to visit the property, I could see how he maintained the property, how he understood how to take care of animals. And so when I got the report back, from the team of US EPA and DuPont scientists that had been told to go out and, and look into what was happening with the cows. And that report came back and said, well, the farmer in, in so many words simply doesn't know how to raise animals. That's when it really started to, to, to red flags started to go off that maybe something else is going on here because this simply didn't track what I was seeing the actual facts of what was happening there. And particularly when I started going through the documents we got from DuPont and, and you're, you're right. I mean, at, at this point, it's been millions of pages. I mean, the litigation continues to this day. Uh, it's been over 20 years of document review and pouring through these materials. And again, as I saw the facts for myself, as I saw on DuPont documents with DuPont letterheads, their own sampling results, their own scientists, their own lawyers 
confirming these things, that this material was there, that it was toxic, that it shouldn't be in the water. And, and seeing that for myself, realizing if somebody simply looked at these facts, if they took the time to do what Mr. Tennant did and go through the documents, if they took the time to see what I was seeing, they would see this as well. You know, and I started with a letter trying to lay all of these facts out to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And that helped start, jumpstart, the regulators looking into this. Then through court filings and briefs, I tried to go through the legal system of making this information available. You know, trying to make this information available to the scientific community as well. And what we started to see after all of these years working, starting to realize a lot of these folks work in silos. You know, the scientists tend to, to only look at certain information and they present it a certain way and they tend to only speak to other scientists. The same thing happens with lawyers. You know, we tend to file our briefs in court and the other lawyers look at it, but the scientists don't see that. You know, or the lawyers aren't looking at what the scientists say. And then you have the, the, the legislators and the regulators who are in their own world. And so really trying to find how do we bring a complicated story like this, one that involves a lot of science, a lot of different legal issues, but impacts everyone. Everyone is exposed. Everyone, um, you know, is at risk because of exposure to this. How do we effectively bring this story out in a way that everybody can see these basic facts for themselves? You mentioned this point where you wrote the letter to, was it the regulatory body? Correct. that you sent the letter to. There's a great part in the book where you kind of lay out with loads of detail why someone might be tempted to take a settlement over a trial. The tenants decide to take a settlement after three years. It could have been really tempting for you to just leave it there. You know, you've got the settlement, which is what you set out to do. You've written the letter. A lot of people would just go, you know, I've done what I can and I'm just going to wash my hands of this. And I think there are so many points in your story where you could have left it there. The impact that you had came from the fact that you just kept going. The fastidiousness and the attention to detail, that was the thing that was absolutely essential. And I was curious, on that journey of just pushing and pushing and pushing for so many years, was there a point when you felt close to just giving up and you know, focusing on your family and focusing on your main caseload? You know, it was, uh, it's, it's been a long journey. And as I mentioned, it still continues. And we've got some new litigation that we're still pursuing on these same issues. Um, but, you know, always in the back of my mind, there was the voice of Earl Tennant, you know, saying, people need to know what happened here. This needs to stop. We need to find a way to get this information out. And, and as the more information I saw, and the more I realized the scope of what we were dealing with here, the more I realized this was a massive public health threat. And we, we, we couldn't just sit back and, and, and hope that's, that everything just worked out. Um, I had seen enough to know you have to keep pushing this on all these different levels. You have to make sure that the scientific community understands and has access to all of the data. You have to make sure that the regulators actually have all of the data and not just what is being fed to them You know, on, on one end of the spectrum. You have to make sure that the public understands what's happening. Um, and that in the court system, you know, the actual science uh, makes its way in and is able to actually be seen by the juries and by the courts. Um, so it's, it's always been in the back of my mind that we have got to keep going to make sure that the full scope of this health threat uh, is, is recognized, uh, you know, because this is a worldwide problem. You know, we, we can't just sit back and assume well, everybody understands this, you know, that, oh, yes, you know, people will jump on this and take care of it. You know, what we have to realize, you know, here was a, an incredibly persistent bioaccumulative carcinogenic toxin that has been out there in our environment, in water all over the United States for decades. 
Mm. Uh, and it's only just now starting to be regulated only because people have been insisting on making sure it happens. And I think even in the United States, most people would assume we turn that tap on. Well, certainly somebody is making sure everything is tested. And, and you know, what, what we've learned through this process is there's relatively only a small number of chemicals that are even tested for in the water just getting us to the point where we start looking for these, <laughs> you know, it has been an incredibly difficult process. So um, I, I think what keeps me going is, is knowing that um, finding these new ways to get this information out is working. People are starting to learn about this. We are starting to have these conversations. Um, it's been frustrating. There have, it's been a slow process, particularly as we were waiting for the independent scientists to finally confirm what we had been seeing in the documents for decades, that this chemical posed a health threat. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I think it was well worth it. And I think this was an incredible process that we were able to set up, you know, to have these independent scientists confirm these links with disease. We're trying to now get these, get whatever additional studies and testing are necessary on this broader group now of PFOS chemicals. Do kind of like what we did in, in West Virginia and Ohio for, for PFOA with independent scientists confirming the links with disease. Now that we know there are all of these other PFOS getting into our water, getting into our blood and, and making sure that if there are new studies and things that need to be done, those get done, and then it's the companies who made these chemicals that are forced to pay whatever those study costs are. That they, the people who are exposed shouldn't have to be fronting the costs to figure out and confirm what those chemicals are doing to us. Another good quote, actually, that links to what you're saying that I liked in the book. You say, I'd always assumed that in the United States, systems were in place to keep us safe from dangerous business practices. As a corporate defense attorney, I saw myself as part of that system, helping to ensure that corporations understood and followed complex regulatory rules. It was deeply disturbing to realize that my baseline assumption might be naive. I felt unmoored as I realized that the problem I'd found with PFOA and DuPont might not be a one-off issue, but a systemic flaw in the framework that was supposed to protect communities downstream. I had the same thing as you just think, wait, isn't someone looking into this? You know, where are the adults? Like, where are the, where are the people regulating this? Is, is it still happening to the extent like with DuPont it's like it, it was you know now it's a feature film and there's a beginning and end and it feels like a you know contained thing but does it continue to happen with other chemicals how do people like look out for stuff that's unregulated like you didn't know what to look for because it wasn't even listed absolutely and I think that's why it's so important you know that hopefully when people see the films or mm -hmm. they read the book you know they'll see the way the system actually works, at least in the United States, of regulating chemicals. Because what you see in this story is focusing on one. We're really focused on one of these chemicals, PFOA. What it took to actually get the information out to the rest of the world. Information that the companies making these chemicals already had that mm -hmm. simply chose not to disclose to the rest of us. It was only through the exposed community for you know bringing them to court and forcing this information out that the rest of the world even began to learn what the companies already knew about the health threats from this one particular chemical unfortunately what we also see happening is as that's going on the companies simply take that chemical and tweak it a bit mm. let's say they a couple of carbons off instead of the PFOA, which was a C8, one that had eight carbons attached to fluorine. They simply knock some off and make a C6 or a C4, or they add some and make a C9 or C10. And suddenly that's a new chemical that starts going out into the world and goes into a lot of these same products that C8 had been used in. And as that chemical starts being found in the environment, or in people. What do we hear from the manufacturers? The same thing we heard 20 years ago about PFOA. Well, there's no evidence confirming that that chemical causes health effects in people who are exposed. And when they say that, it's not necessarily because the studies have been done. What they're saying is there's no evidence because there's no, they haven't done those studies. It's our burden 
the exposed people are now being told, well, if you think there's something wrong with these new ones, you have the burden to come in and prove that. And look at what it what it took to do that for C8. 69,000 people in that community along the Ohio River had to come forward, provide blood, have the studies done. Seven years of independent scientists setting up massive epidemiological studies, all to confirm what was already known by the companies about the health effects. But that's the one of the few times where you know the, the exposed people, <coughs> excuse me, have actually been able to meet that burden to say yes, we can now confirm this is a problem. So it's 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 very frustrating to regulators, to scientists who see that story and saw what happened with PFOA to see what essentially looks like the whack-a-mole game, <laughs> that we, we stopped one and we finally have everything that the, that is claimed to be needed to, to regulate. Then we simply tweak the chemical. We call it something new and now we have to start all over again. As you look at that and you start to realize it's not just one or two additional new chemicals. It could be hundreds, if not thousands. How long could this possibly take? So, so we've got a lot of regulators, scientists, um, policymakers worldwide who are now looking at that and looking at this example of what happened between C8 and these new chemicals that are coming out and saying, this maybe the way we're doing this isn't working. You know, maybe we need to be approaching our whole way we regulate chemicals differently. Maybe we need to be looking at them as a class, for example, where we, we, we take what we know about one of them and apply it to the other ones that have same characteristics. Otherwise, we're going to be caught in this endless loop. So you see a lot of folks that are shifting to what we call the precautionary principle, where you don't wait until it's 1000% proven that this chemical is actually causing people to get cancer before you take action. You try to work with what was what we already have, what we know about the shared characteristics of these of the of all these chemicals and move forward that way. So we're already seeing in the United States for example, in states that are choosing to move forward and to try to regulate some of the companies are actually suing the states to stop them from doing that. So it's it's an incredible tension now going on about how do we move forward to best protect people when we have um, potential health threats like this. Feels like from what you're saying, society is kind of weighted in the interest of business versus citizens. And it feels like one solution to that on a really practical basis is what you said, which is grouping the chemicals. Another one you feel like could be if you come up with a new chemical, you need to apply for a license to use it. Is that in conversation or is that, would that be completely unfeasible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in the United States, um, we have a federal law called the Toxic Substances Control Act that came out in the late 1970s. And really, and I'm kind of oversimplifying here, but its whole purpose was to, re to require certain types of tests and data to be done on new chemicals before they go out onto the market. Like what we do with drug testing, right? Somewhat similar, yes. The problem was, of course, PFOA was already invented and already in massive use for decades before that law even came out. Right. So when the law came out, it really focused on new chemicals from that point forward. And for existing chemicals like PFOA that were already out there, the way the law worked is essentially it was up to the chemical manufacturers to alert the agency if there was some reason they needed to go look at that. And what we saw with PFOA, unfortunately, there was plenty of reasons to alert the agency of environmental and health threats, and it just didn't happen. This whole story was used as one of the reasons why that law was eventually beefed up. Uh, steps were taken in 2016 to try to strengthen the law, to make more information required upfront about these chemicals before they go onto the market. But one example has already come up to sh that really kind of highlights why we still have some pretty significant flaws in that system. And that's with the replacement chemical for PFOA. Pot had been making PFOA and agreed to stop making it around 2005, and they took 10 years, uh, a 10-year phase out. 
Well, while they were phasing out their manufacture of PFOA, they brought out one of these replacements that had a couple of fewer carbons. Instead of the PFOA, which was a C8, eight carbons, they started making a replacement they called Gen X that had six carbons. It was a C6. They wanted to be able to use that in, in, in the same way they had been using PFOA. Well, they, they submitted their applications to the federal government. And unfortunately, not all of the data, all of the studies had been done at that point. The US EPA said, well, we're going to give you initial approval to begin making this, but you need to keep giving us the rest of the studies. For example, the cancer studies hadn't been done yet. So they get permission to start making this replacement chemical in 2009. In 2012, the first cancer data comes in and unfortunately shows that the replacement, Gen X, causes the exact same three tumors in rats that PFOA did, liver, testicular, and pancreatic. But it's been years since they first looked at the application. It's part of submissions that are now going into an agency that's massively overworked, understaffed, underfunded, and it kind of got ignored. <laughs> and so nobody really followed up on that until the chemicals showed up in drinking water in North Carolina of hundreds of thousands of people in 2016, 2017, that people started to look, go back and look at that data again. So the system may be there, or we may be improving that system a bit, but the, the practical reality is we still lack the funding, the staffing, and the resources to handle the incredible volume of information that's going in about these new chemicals. Why is it any different to medical testing, for example, which is this is a new product that we've created or a new vaccine, let's say, or a new drug. We know roughly what to test for. You know, we're not going to test everything because there may be unintended consequences, but we know what the big things are to test for and we're going to test for them. And then, only then, will it be able to buy and use on the, on the public market? Why is it any different from that? Why can't chemicals be treated in the same way? You've got, at least in the United States, sort of these dual systems. Um, you've got one system in place for regulating chemicals that we purposely take into our bodies to, to change something in us. Something like a drug, all right, that's regulated by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And you've got this whole series of laws that requires safety testing up front. And you've got to prove, you know, that it's safe. And you've got to even prove the dose, you know, that it's safe to take for humans. Now, let's talk about PFAS chemicals, chemicals that, just like a drug, are getting in us. It's as if we were injected. All right. When they end up in our water, they get into our blood. They stay there for extended periods of time. But because we're exposed to them through the environment, as opposed to walking into the store and getting a syringe full as a drug and injecting it into us, um, it's not the same. What, what essentially happens, it's the exposed person is told it's their burden in the U.S. to prove that the chemical's harmful. And by the way, if you walk into a court, the company making that chemical is going to say, you need studies that are big enough, strong enough to prove cancer actually happens in humans. And we're, we're also gonna tell you that those studies won't be seen as big enough and strong enough unless they include tens of thousands of people. And that can cost you know $100 million to do. So the exposed person, is confronted with a burden in the court system that's almost impossible uh, to achieve. One thing I think is interesting when thinking about specifically about the DuPont case is it's easy to look at that and say, this is an evil corporation who don't care about anything but profit, they're greedy. You know, it's easy to go down that route. And I'm curious, when you look at how this happened, they did all this research internally, they found links to birth defects, they found this stuff and they're sitting on this material, Yet they continue to pump out Teflon. They continue to, and I think it was over um, $1 billion, that product line, right? So they had a lot to lose. But is it accurate to say the thing that drove this and the thing that allowed this to happen was greed? Or do you think it was something else? It's, it's incredibly complex uh, to try to fully grasp 
how did this happen and why did it happen? And again, one of the reasons I wanted to sit down and, and put the book together was for people to, to, to try to get a, at least an initial feeling and understanding as to how that happened in this particular situation, because you're dealing with, you know, when you talk about DuPont, you know, you know, it's a, it was a huge company that had been around for a long time with thousands of employees. And what we saw was an incredible amount of tensions internally. You had um, lawyers and scientists, um, you know, raising concerns about these issues. You had business people who were, had con- competing concerns, shall we say, uh, about wanting to continue profit lines. And you had this kind of um, overlay of that whole phenomenon being what was going on on the regulatory side and the legal side with the fact that the chemical wasn't, quote, regulated and concerns about the company incurring costs, for example, to put in filtration systems and to do these things if it wasn't regulated and wasn't required. So you have tension. You had a business units operating somewhat autonomously versus, you know, a central control that was carefully controlling everything. And there have been articles written on this issue since. Uh, there was a great article by Zingales and, um, uh, at a University of Chicago and Harvard, I think it was a year or so ago, looking at the whole issue of why were these decisions made and was it economically rational because of the way the laws work? And, you know, when, when you tell the story, you know, you often get the question, you know, why has nobody gone to jail and, and why, you know, why was nobody really ever personally held responsible here? That's part of this issue as well. When you go into court, you have the ability to get money damages or to have the court order that something be done. You don't have the ability to prosecute for crimes. That, that's, that's the kind of thing that's done by the government. All right. So it's the government that needs to make those decisions. And it's very difficult. And it's, it's very uncommon, you know, that individuals within companies are held responsible for these kinds of decisions. That goes into this as well. You know, should there be uh, improvements to our systems to have increased deterrence, you know, to, to make it less attractive to make decisions like this? Um, you, you know, you don't want people to be able to just simply make a cold economic decision you know, what's the likelihood if I get caught, how much will we have to pay in fines or settlements versus how many millions or billions can we continue to make in the meantime? So uh, there's a lot of discussion going on on those issues right now as well, which is which is terrific. One question is, are individuals actually responsible for this? Or was it a situation where, as you say, the corporation was so large that it went over, it spanned over such a large period of time. It was almost a case of like diffused responsibility where so many people were part of it that it was difficult for anyone to make a an impact or a decision or, or do you not take that role? Do you think it was specific individuals that were responsible for this happening? Well, you know, like as you see in the film, there was a point in time where we had the the top person at DuPont, their, their CEO, their chief executive officer, who was showing up at annual shareholder meetings or in public making statements to the effect that there was no evidence that suggested there was any harm from this chemical. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons we took the deposition, you know, was to make sure that this individual actually did see all of these internal documents, that he wasn't being shielded from this information, you know, that there, that, that information was flowing to the top. So by the end of that deposition, he had seen all of those studies and he had seen that information. You know, when it, when it, if a company is ordered to pay a huge judgment in a lawsuit, that money is coming from the company or from the shareholders. It's not coming from an individual's pocket. Um, you know, so that's why I think that the, the thought is, you know, personal responsibility. Uh, that the, the threat of potentially having to go, you know, be incarcerated or actually personally have to pay uh, may influence people in their decision making process. If they, if they think the only thing that's going to happen is the company might have to pay money years down the line after that person maybe is retired or has already switched to a different company, 
um, they're less likely to be as concerned about it is, is the theory. Something that I thought was really, really interesting about the whole story was the fact that you were a corporate, and you continue to be at the same firm, um, a corporate defense lawyer for chemical companies. Right as well in the book, I didn't sue corporations like DuPont, I defended them. Their fees paid my bills. And there's a bunch of reasons why it could have been a risk to your career, one of which being it could have changed the way that chemicals were regulated, which would have affected a lot of your existing clients. It felt like you had a lot on the line by taking this stance. And I was really curious to hear, did it ever feel like a real risk to your career? And then how did you manage to almost like emotionally shut down that risk so to allow you to keep going? Yeah, it was uh, not an easy process. Um, there were a lot of competing things going on at the at the time. Um, um, you know, and again, one of the there were so many things that had to align just right for this story to have ever worked out the way it did. And one of those was being at a law firm, the particular firm I I was at and am still at now for thirty one years. Uh, that, allowed me to do that and not only allowed, uh, uh, you know, and, and supported taking on this case, but stuck by it uh, through a massive economic downturn in 2008 through 2011 when, when the global economy was imploding. And, and not only that, but to, to keep bringing the case in different phases, um, you know, uh, that I don't know, there are many firms that would do that, um, but it was... At the same time, incredibly stressful, the responsibility, not only for tens of thousands of people that were counting on us to make sure that the scientific process wasn't compromised, wasn't improperly influenced somehow, and that we got the results, whatever they might be, um, that we were able to get those answers and get it done. Um, you had that, that pressure and, and, you know, feeling responsible for my partners at our law firm as well and my family as we we're um, you know, waiting for this process to play out. Um, it was at big risk. Nobody had really done this before. We weren't sure how it would work, if it would work, or how long it would take. Uh, you know, we can look back on it now and know that it, it, it did work and it was, it was successful. But waiting for that process um, was stressful. And you see how that manifested um, in health issues. Uh, you see some of that portrayed in the film. Uh, I, I, when I look back on all of this, uh, I have to say, I don't think I would, I would change any of it. So this podcast is actually normally dedicated to people who have created things they think should exist in the world on the side. Um, and I was so moved by the film. I was like, is there any way this is a side project? And then as I read the book, I found, you know, you said that essentially you still have the same caseload as a lawyer um, and you just had to do it after that. So you were kind of in the office until 11 p.m. instead of 6 p.m. Yeah. In fact, when, when we first took on the case for Mr. Tennant, I, you know, kind of viewed this as this would be sort of on the side. This was a small project. Um, you know, for, for one family there in West Virginia. And it was, it should be a fairly straightforward, easy thing to do. Mm. And I maintained my full workload, um, you know, with our corporate clients and everything else, you know, um, until it, it slowly transformed over the years uh, and uh, sort of took over um, um, what I was working on for the next decade or, or two decades. So, um, but it's it certainly when it began, um, you know, was, was something I thought was going to be sort of, as you put it, on the side um, and something that was going to be uh, a small project um, that wouldn't really take me off the path that I was already on. You talk about this a bit in the book as well, but it must have been a big change from being a corporate defense lawyer that generally deals with relatively faceless corporations looking at corporate disputes. And then with this, not only are you working on behalf of a, of a citizen, you're also you're dealing with people who are suffering. You know, there's so many examples of people who are in a lot of pain, who are really angry. To, to someone who's not a lawyer, it sounds to me like it's a very different experience from from kind of being a corporate lawyer where you can it's slightly more detached but is that is that accurate or is that not quite the right way of looking at it yeah and i do talk about this a bit in the book you know where i kind of give the example of you may have questions come up with you know your corporate clients that are incredibly complicated and may involve a lot of money and a lot of a lot of issues 
but the people you're you're dealing with it's not necessarily their personal problem you know at the end of the day they can go home and watch tv or forget about what was going on and it's really not their personal issue where this was one of the first cases uh, i had been involved in where you know you had people that were living and breathing the problem um, on a daily basis it was impacting every aspect of their lives um, and you know we're, we're really looking uh, to me for just an incredible additional layer so to speak of of, um, uh, of assistance in beyond what I had typically been doing and and found it incredibly rewarding as well um, adds a lot of additional um, um, uh, responsibility but um, you know being able to work with people that really truly you know were needing the help and really relying upon you and you know, these these folks uh, became incredibly good friends as well um, over the years. So, you know, at our firm, we don't necessarily view these as two opposite worlds, you know, that you've got lawyers who only represent companies and then lawyers who only represent people who are suing. And our view is we have clients. Um, and once we agree to take on a client with a particular issue, we represent them um, the same way, whether they be a corporation or an individual, we represent them to our best of our abilities. And, and part of what, um, you know, I've, I've been trying to do as well through my career is trying to help break down that, that, that division, that wall that seems to exist, at least in the U S concept that you have plaintiffs, lawyers, and you have defense lawyers and that the two groups never intersect. And, and I think people, Hopefully, we'll, we'll start getting rid of that mindset and realizing, no, we all have clients and we're able to be better lawyers for all of our clients by having folks that fit in both categories. Because, you know, my work with corporate clients allowed me to understand what their concerns were, what their what their thought processes were, what, what, what objectives they were dealing with, what their stresses were, what their um, you know, goals and, and objectives were in litigation. And then similarly with working with people like Mr. Tennant or Joe Kiger or people that were injured, um, you know, I'd be, I had a better understanding then of what their concerns were, what their issues were in dealing with litigation. So that I think it helps you be better able to deal with effective resolution, coming up with ways that meet everyone's concerns. Um, and, you know, I think you, you really only get that having experience on, on what has been traditionally called both sides. It's interesting you say that because it is a, looking at side projects more generally, that's often what happens. We're, we're kind of brought up with this idea that, you know, a career is just one thing and it needs to be in its box and we need to look at it in that way and you show up to work and you have no other sides to you. But actually, you often find when someone takes something on on the side, it builds these surprisingly transferable skills. So on paper, it might have looked like a case that was completely removed from your day-to-day -day work at Taft. But then, you know, you found out actually this is built transferable skills, which has made me better as a lawyer, which is really interesting. It's almost like an accidental positive that happened for your career. Yeah. And this is something I, I discuss when I speak with students at law schools, you know, that are starting their careers and hopefully help them understand, you know, that you don't have to do something a certain way just because that's always the way that it's been done. And, you know, just because you're joining a firm that does X doesn't mean you can't make that something else that, you know, you have the ability to, to change these things and to uh, to do something new. And uh, as a lawyer, I think it's incredibly fortunate you know, with our with a law degree to have those opportunities, you know, to sort of remake the field and, and redefine what it means you know, to be a lawyer. Reflecting on that, what advice would you give someone who's listening, who's thinking, you know, something similar where they feel they want to say something about something, but they don't feel powerful enough or they don't feel able to do something about it? Is there anything that you think of that helped you have the confidence to bring that to the people who ran the firm and really progress it further? When people see the facts and when people can see the information for themselves, they will do the right thing. Mm. It may take a long time <laughs> for people to eventually see the facts and do the right thing. But, 
you know, that you need to just find an effective way to objectively present those facts in a way that allows folks to see for themselves what the issue is and be able to make that decision, to make the change, that it's not just you arguing on behalf of somebody, you're presenting with the information they need to make that decision. Let's talk just for the last couple of minutes around, we've talked a lot about the film and the book, but a bit about how it came about, because, you know, you are a lawyer working on this case. It did get some publicity, but I think the big piece was the feature film. How did that come about? We were at the phase where we were actually preparing the first cases to go to trial where the people who had been drinking this chemical in their water down along the Ohio River were, were finally getting to the point of being able to present their case to a jury. Uh, and we ended up getting the first verdict in the country against DuPont, where DuPont was held liable for having caused a lady's cancer. But what we saw happening was still, there was really nobody, the rest of the country still was not aware and not paying any attention to what was happening with PFAS and the fact that this same chemical was likely in drinking water all over the country. And uh, Nathaniel Rich approached us about wanting to work on an article for the New York Times. Um, and you know, I was very hesitant, uh, as I mentioned in the book, about doing that. I was concerned about the public health threat and how do we, how do we raise awareness that this same chemical was in other people's water. And so I agreed to do that interview and that came out in January of 2016. And I was really, I was floored by, by how many people read that uh, piece and reached out, frankly. And one of the folks that reached out was Mark Ruffalo. Um, he uh, was a longtime advocate for water rights. And when he, when he read the piece, he was um, struck by the scope and scale of the potential problem and was really concerned that why was this not getting more discussion? Why, why was this on the cover of the New York Times magazine, but not on the front page of the New York Times? And what could he do to help bring that story out? Um, and, you know, and I was hesitant to say the least you know, about, about the whole idea of, of, of a movie that was all foreign to me, but he, he worked with an incredible group with participant media, with Todd Haynes, the director, and just put together an incredible team that was very dedicated to making sure that the story was, was brought out the right way, that it was as accurate, you know, as they could do in a film to, of showing what really happened over 20 years to real people and conveying it in a way that people would understand why this story matters beyond just West Virginia. Um, and so they, I think they, you know, ended up doing a fantastic job. Couldn't have, couldn't have picked a better group, uh, a better team of people. Um, and, you know, it didn't end with the, with just the film participant, um, was able to, uh, develop a social media, um, program that launched with the release of the film, um, that able, was able to start helping raise awareness worldwide, uh, of the, of the forever chemical problem. For people listening who are like, what, like, is this relevant to me? They're listening and saying, what is it? It's like, it must only be a tiny amount. You know, do I need to care about this? What would you say to them? PFOS chemicals, these man-made per and polyfluoroalkylated substances, they may be chemicals that we can't pronounce, <laughs> that we can't see, we can't smell, we can't taste, but they're, they're everywhere. They've been in so many products that, frankly, our entire environment is contaminated. We've got them in our blood. And as you say, you may, you may have people who say, so what? What, what, what does it matter that they're out there, uh, that they're, they're in our blood? The, the concern is what the scientific community has found out about these chemicals. They are very unique in their ability to stay in us and to build up. But most disturbing is their potential to cause harm because it's being found at lower and lower exposure levels. Mm -hmm. That's what's got the scientific community most concerned. That's why you see regulators and lawmakers all over the planet proposing lower and lower thresholds for how much is acceptable 
in drinking water, in soil, in products. The Independent Science Panel confirmed links with six different diseases, two cancers, kidney cancer and testicular cancer, but also thyroid disease, ulcerative colitis, high cholesterol, preeclampsia. What's happened since is the people who have been researching this, the scientists looking at not just PFOA, but the related chemicals are finding that the potential toxic effects are, the, the number of them are increasing. For example, we're seeing now concern about the ability of these chemicals to impact impair our immune system, because the more we learn about this chemi- these chemicals, the more scientists and regulators are concerned about them at lower and lower exposure levels. As this whole story has played out, as the first jury verdicts were finally coming in, mm. saying that DuPont caused these problems and caused cancer, for example, and folks that drank this in their water, that's when we saw the DuPont company start to to distance itself from the Teflon brand. They spun off the entire Teflon business into a completely new company. And that company now runs the Teflon business. And what's left of DuPont has merged with Dow Chemical and formed three new companies. So DuPont, what we traditionally know as DuPont, is changing and disappearing as we know it. Is that just for a corporate liability limitation? Well, there's a lot of actual litigation going on right now over that exact issue about how that was done and whether attempts were made, being made to shield assets or to fraudulent transfer the money. Do you use the Teflon products? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, you know, it, it, but again, it's not always possible to know exactly where these materials are. For example, knowing what products still have PFOA or what products mm-hmm. have replacement chemicals in them. It's, it's almost impossible to know that. Is there any guide? Because I feel like people listening to this will be thinking, oh my God, should I throw out all of my saucepans? What can they do to limit their exposure to it? You know, there are some great um, organizations out there working right now that try to compile information for consumers who want to be able to take steps to minimize their exposure and want to know which brands do or do not have these chemicals. And they're posting, for example, the names of companies that have announced that they're no longer going to use PFAS or that they've committed to switching out by a certain amount of time. For example, fast food companies have have made those, a number of them have made that commitment with respect to wrappers or packaging. Some clothing companies have done that, some cosmetic companies. And so some of the groups that have information like that are, for example, Green Science Policy Institute out of Berkeley, California, or the Environmental Working Group, or the Center for Environmental Health, or Safer States. There, So groups like that are working to try to get that kind of information out to consumers. When you say you're on this mission to campaign for knowledge and awareness around what's happened and what continues to happen, and you say that citizens and people can have an impact on it, what can people do to become more aware and to avoid it happening again? Well, you know, I'm really hopeful that when people see this story, either through the films or the book, and they see what happened here, what they, well, hopefully the takeaway is that even one person standing up, speaking out, saying, this isn't the way it should work. Even if we're dealing with some of the biggest powers out there, huge corporations, huge regulatory systems that have been in place, you know, national, federal, or international governments and treaties, those things can be changed. One person can make a huge difference. Somebody like Wilbur Tennant in West Virginia standing up and saying, this shouldn't be happening. People need to know about this. People like Joe Kiger, who stood up for his community, that what those folks did, individuals and communities coming together, has led now to global change. We now see that laws are changing. Systems are changing. Maybe people shouldn't be forced into court like they were in in what we saw in the story here in West Virginia in battle over this for decades before people are protected from these exposures. They get clean drinking water. They're protected from from this moving forward and the adequate studies are done. So I'm really hoping people know (laughs) 
these things can be changed. It doesn't matter how big the odds, um, how big your opponent, it can be done and it's, and it's working. I'm going to let you go. I appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much for um, taking the time. It's amazing. And it's an honor to meet you. I've been very nervous throughout this interview. So <laughs> no, it was my pleasure. It was a, a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review or subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. 